This message by Sam Shin, entitled Life After Death, was recorded at Wellspring Church on June 30th, 2019. The text for this message is Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. I am sure that many of you have heard or perhaps know someone who has had, quote, a life after death experience. Usually it's the moment that someone dies even for a few minutes and you've heard stories where they see a light or they see different friends or they see a tunnel. That's a very familiar story to many of us. But the question is, is that what the Bible says? And if not, or if so, what does happen as soon as you die? It's a, it's a very important question. It's one that I don't know if we really explored, but I hope today, afterward, you will see at least here's what the Bible says. And if you have further questions, come to the dessert. So with it, we'll look at a few areas uh, regarding this idea. First is that there are some errant views of life after death, and we're not going to cover all of them. There are many, but I'll cover just two. And I skipped a few because just for time's sake. But there are a few very particular errant views. Second is, what does the Bible say? Biblical views of life after death. And then finally, the implications of those biblical views of life after death. So first, let's look at the errant views. And as I shared, there are two. The first is one that I'm going to describe as angelic frolicking. And uh, I couldn't think of a better way to describe this. So I thought, I'll put it this way. In other words, Visions or dreams that you have heard of or maybe movies that you've watched or books that you've heard about or even read that describe life accounts as soon as someone dies. And you might have heard it from perhaps non-Christian perspectives, but there are even a lot of Christian perspectives that uh, books that have been written describing life after death immediately. And for Paul, actually, this was nothing new. In fact, he records an event in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to 3. And perhaps some of you have heard of this text in particular. And usually, when describing these accounts, they refer to this text quite often. This is what Paul writes in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Well, actually, it's the same. I don't know if I sort of have it written exactly twice in the same way. And I'm wondering if I misprinted it in my notes. But here's the thing is that if you look at that text very particularly, you notice that there is a phrase that the NIV in particular uses, and it's the idea of the third heaven. And most biblical commentators, when discussing this, really have quite a challenge because they're wrestling with the fact of what is this third heaven? What is this speaking of? And so oftentimes when these accounts, especially Christian accounts, are dealing with the concept of a third heaven, they think of it as heaven has these layers or these different levels and so when Christians have these accounts, these eyewitness accounts, 
they sort of examine or imagine that they go to one place and then they go to a next place and a next place. And so therefore, as soon as you die, you sort of go to this first heaven. But what Paul lays out, and this is essentially what most biblical commentators see in examining this text, is that rather than seeing it as Paul knowing a very particular person who went to this place, it's actually speaking of Paul himself that he himself was dealing with all sorts of different problems within the church. As you examine the church in Corinth, one thing that is known so clearly is that it encounters a lot of problems internally about, especially about spiritual encounters, spiritual gifts, uh, miraculous events. And so Paul, in his first and second letters, to the church in Corinth lays out all sorts of remedies to these problems and really addressing a spiritual abuse when it comes to miraculous events. And so in this account, Paul lists things that should not be told or experiences that he had. And when you look at what Paul is saying, it's essentially, he's saying not just a man, but himself what he's encountered. This is uh, so clear because we see later on in verse 7 that he actually refers to these revelations. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. It's very interesting how Paul lays out the account of a man, some man having these revelations, And then suddenly Paul refers to himself in saying, to keep me from these revelations, Jesus gives him a thorn in the flesh. So that's why in general, most biblical commentators and theologians see that when Paul's referring to these accounts, he's actually referring to himself, whether it's perhaps his reference to the seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he sees Jesus on this road, he could have very much just sort of been so caught up in the exhilaration of having this imaginary encounter with Jesus, you might say, and be so fixated on a spiritual, supernatural event that that could have encompassed every part of his ministry. But instead, he's saying, I don't want you to focus on the supernaturalness of it, although it was, but rather in what that did for me and how it changed my life and my paradigm of viewing the world. Or even if he did have an account of even seeing great things, but that isn't what he's going to focus on because there's so much more involved. It's really a warning for all of us, essentially, to say that depending on the miraculous, after-death revelations even of different people, without giving account to the idea that what matters most is not the revelations themselves, but rather it's what we believe, what God's word says is the solution to truly what are the problems at the root cause of all that we undergo. There's a a very famous book that actually came about not that long ago, Heaven is for Real. And it was written by um, a father of a four-year-old named Colton Burpo. It was a New York Times bestseller. It became a movie, and I don't know if any of you watched this movie, but it made $100 million. That's actually quite a lot. Its budget was $12 million, so relatively speaking, very successful movie. And it was promoted by a lot of the Christian publishing houses and 
And a lot of Christians went to go see this movie because the idea was this boy had such great illustrations of what he saw in heaven. Truly, this must be what heaven is like. Just to give you a description of some of the things that Colton saw in heaven. He saw that the Holy Spirit is the color blue. He saw Jesus having rainbow horses. He saw every person he met having wings and halos, including himself. And he saw that Jesus had um, had a sword, and he Colton wanted a sword, Jesus' sword, but Jesus said, you're too young to have a sword. So these are the visions that he saw of what heaven was like, and it was a New York Times bestseller and made so much money, and he and his father went to all sorts of churches to share his story about what heaven is like. But here's the disturbing part of what this four-year-old had regarding the visions. It's not that he had visions, because think about it for all of us, you have a four, some of you have four-year-olds. They have imaginations. Those imaginations are not so crazy. They're not bad. But for adults to place their hope and their, their vision and truth of what heaven is like based on a four-year-old, that's problematic. Rather than believing the time-tested warnings of what Peter gives in, say, 2 Peter 1.16, where he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's not that a four-year-old has visions of heaven. That's not the problem. The problem is that there are people who believe that that's the truth of what heaven is like based on those visions when someone like Peter tells us, do not depend on devised myths, but rather on the eyewitness account of the apostles, which we have through his word, through God's word, the Bible. The second sort of area where we see a, a false view of what life after death is like is the concept of purgatory. Purgatory is something that Roman Catholicism teaches, and perhaps whether you realize it or not, you might believe it yourself, whether you're a Roman Catholic or not. But we have very little idea of why do Catholics even believe in a purgatory? Where does that come from? The primary text that purgatory comes from that Roman uh, Catholic teaching teaches on is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. I'll read it for you. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself and himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Catholic theology teaches that the fire that is your life's work, your good deeds, will test whether that work is good enough to get you to heaven. But that testing comes after death, not just during life, but as well after death. And so the reward that you receive that is being saved is going to happen through the fire. The fire, again, 
are the good deeds of your whole life. But not just your good deeds, but as well as the deeds of those who love you and care for you. These works are accomplished, so not just by measuring your good works, but also by measuring those who work for your benefit while you wait to see, are you righteous enough to be with God forever and ever? And that's why Catholic theology, if you ever go into a cathedral and you see the candles and the votives all up in the front, and there's a little box and there's a, a coin slot. And so if you put a coin in, you light a candle, and you pray for not just yourself, but you pray for those loved ones who have gone on before you. And by doing so, the hope is that you're giving to the benefit of the church, and therefore not just to that church, but to that loved one who perhaps is in purgatory waiting for enough works to be done on their behalf to finally make it to heaven. This, of course, goes against everything the Bible teaches about why we are saved in the first place, why we are good enough to be in heaven. One thing we know, as Paul teaches, in the same, to the same church, in the church in Corinth, as he's writing about, that our works are never good enough to go to heaven on their own. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, and that's a really key phrase, prepositional phrase, in him we might become the righteousness of God. We never become righteous by ourselves, by our works, by what we do. And we don't become righteous by what someone else does for us. Only in Christ alone are we righteous enough to enter into God's presence. There is no heavenly waiting room where we take a number hoping that our friends and family are saying enough rosaries or giving enough money to be able to make it so that we can finally just squeeze through just enough to get into heaven. The fact of the matter is, is that there is a better way and there is a, a biblical way upon which we get to heaven, which is through Christ alone. And so that it's not about flitting around and waiting for a halo to be attached to us and wings to be added, or we don't take a super long nap. I didn't cover soul sleeping, but you could talk about that if you come to heavenly desserts. Or there's no cosmic waiting room where we're sort of biting our nails and hoping that our relatives are good enough for us, to work enough for us so that we make it by the skin of our teeth. Instead, when we die, if we are in Christ, if we believe in him and his righteousness is ours, we either, we make it to heaven based solely on that and we make it completely through Christ alone. Or if we do not trust in Christ, we go to hell. And we'll talk about hell and judgment in weeks to come. So here's the big question. What does happen right after we die? As soon as you close your eyes and you take your last breath, what do you see? A few things that the Bible does show us is that we immediately go to heaven after death. When we die, there's no waiting around. It's heaven immediately. And this is where we see what Jesus says to the thief on the cross is so essential to that idea. He says, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. There's 
an immediacy to what death brings to this man. There's no purgatory. There's no intermediate place. And if there was anyone who would, been a, who would have been a candidate for purgatory, it would have been this thief. Because essentially, most of his life had been a life of criminality. I mean, he hadn't done anything good, you might say. Only at the last second. So if there's anyone who deserved to be in purgatory, it would be this man. But Jesus makes it so clear to him that it's not based on his works that he makes it to heaven. It's based on those last statements, that heart change that we see in verses 39 on. Suddenly he trusts in Christ as his Savior. And through the work of Jesus on that very cross, he is welcomed into heaven. Praise God that it's not based on his works. The one thing we know is that that same word, paradise, is the same word that we see in 2 Corinthians 12.3. That heaven is a paradise. It's a place where Jesus sees eternally heaven immediately right after death. The second thing is that we immediately are with Jesus fully and forever. Jesus says, today you will be with me. Paul also mentions the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, through 8, when he says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul's reiterating what Jesus says to the thief. When we die... Our body remains here and our soul is at home with Jesus fully and forever. And there is nothing sweeter, more soul satisfying, more delightful than to be at home. Paul makes it so clear in Romans 8, 38 through 39, just to make sure that we never mistake the idea that somehow there's a separation from Jesus when we see him, when we die. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sure that neither death, death does not separate us from the love of Christ forever and ever. So when we die, we see Jesus face to face. Third, we are awaiting our final state. Theologians call this time the intermediate state. And the reality is that the Bible doesn't say that much about how this works exactly. That there is a, a time difference between our physical death and the return of Jesus. We sang a few songs, and we'll continue to do so throughout this series, about Jesus returning. But that's a big question. A question that we will tackle together is, how does it work that when we die... Our soul meets Jesus, but our physical body still remains in the grave. How does that all work together? Uh, it's not as though every single step is laid out. We'll talk about why that is the case. But there's enough in the Bible to show that there is a, there is a, a way to see Jesus and yet still await the coming of the Savior to create a new heaven and a new earth. That we will be with Jesus in some way with our souls, but we await a day where a glorified physical body will come. 
We also know that this to be true because the disciples, during the transfiguration of Jesus, if you can recall that story where Jesus climbs the mountain in Luke chapter 9, and he, he is there with Elijah and Moses. And they're not soul sleeping or Elijah and Moses aren't in purgatory sort of hoping that they've done enough good deeds. Instead, they're with Jesus immediately. And they, according to Luke 9.31, they appear in glory and they're connecting with him. Peter and James and John also, they recognize who Elijah and Moses are. So there's no confusion as to are these just sort of myths or there's a, a real physicality and spirituality to it. And somehow it all works. And one day it will be completed together. So keep that in mind because all of these things help us to ask a few questions. And one essential question, which is this. Why does this matter? How does this impact me? Because that's really great to know theologically or abstractly. But does that impact my life today? I always want to ask that question to any sermon, to any Bible study, to any devotion. I want to know what difference it makes. And it does make a big difference in a few ways. First, when we die, we are not merely in a better place. That is a phrase that we often say or hear. And I'm sure for those of you who've lost loved ones, you, you've heard that phrase. You've heard that phrase from well-meaning people, well-meaning grievers and mourners. But when you really think about it, is that really comforting? It makes it seem as though the place, heaven, is what makes everything better. But is that true? The Bible teaches that heaven is not about the place. See, the problem is that we tend to think that we're going to some future place, and that future place is going to be better than it is here. And so that's what brings comfort to people. But actually, the Bible is not about, does not speak about the place, but rather about the person who dwells in that place. What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there, and we're going to be with him immediately. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, this, your home is where Jesus is. And that's what makes it comforting. So really, if you're going to comfort someone, it's not about he or she, if they're in the Lord, it's not that he's in a better place or she's in a better place. It's that he's with Jesus. He sees his savior. He's comforted by the fact that Jesus is right by his side. If you have ever been at your house without your family, it can seem very lonely if, say, you're at home and your family has gone away on vacation. And if you have, uh, the bigger the family, the more you feel this is that there's an emptiness to that house. You know, that's when you realize that your house is not your home. Your home is where your family is. And regardless of where you are in this world, as long as your family is there, that's where your home is. Because being in a, and I've been there, you, you're in a, your house, and the bigger the house, the more that just doesn't seem like home to you. It seems as though it's just an empty building. And that's the problem with thinking of heaven as this place, is that the place without Jesus 
is just this empty building or structure. In fact, you could make the case that if Jesus were not there, that would not be heaven, it would be hell. And so what you do not want to consider is that it's just about being in a better place. It's that you know that they are with their Savior, with the person who is so deeply soul-satisfying to them that actually, if given the choice, they would never want to return back to you. You might think that's mean or heartless, but the reality is, if you understand the Bible, it's true. That to go to be with Christ forever is so deeply soul-satisfying, not heaven, but Jesus who is in heaven, that your loved one, given the choice, would never say, I want to be with my wife still. I want to be with my husband. That's not just is it self-centered, it's just not true. Because you represent only the fullness of who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate of what you represent to that person, what we represent to each other. As much as I love my wife and my children, my church, but that's never deeply and eternally and purposely soul-satisfying. It's always a shadow of who Jesus is to me. And when I see him face to face, there is no one I will want more than him. Also, knowing the certainty of our future makes our present purposeful and fruitful. One of our greatest challenges in life is that we lose perspective. Whatever is urgent for us now controls our hearts without even considering the consequences. What if you knew, for those of you, let's say if you have children, what if you knew your children would succeed, would worship Christ, would have a fruitful marriage, would be able to prosper? What if you knew at the end of their days they would die? And what if you knew definitively, without a doubt, that that would happen? How would that impact your parenting right now? What if you knew if you, if uh, you could know for certainty that you would be with your spouse to the end of your years and be so much in love and have such a deep love and affection for one another? How would that impact the conflict that you're having today? I think it would make a big difference. It would give you a sense of peace. You would be able to walk through fires, through difficulty and trials and, and all the mourning and say, I know the end will be okay, so therefore I can get through this. That's what this should do for us, this idea of understanding of what heaven is like. If we know this is our true destiny, this is, this is as, as I shared last week, what C.S. Lewis describes as the rest of our book. We're only living the preface of our book. If we knew that to be true, shouldn't it impact the way we view our trials today? Those things that we are anxious and concerned about, how we spend our time, how we live our lives, how we prioritize all of those things that matter that are important to us. It should definitively make a difference. It should impact how we view romance, how we watch our, our TV shows, how we spend our waking moments how we struggle with impatience, how we, how we uh, drive on the roads, on the freeways. The moment controls our future, 
But that's not how it should be. It should be our future should control our moments. C.S. Lewis says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. How often, perhaps, we are so focused on these pleasant inns, we forget home is what matters, and we're not meant for this world if we are in Christ. Life after death, if we are in Christ, should give us confidence and hope and courage. It should actually make us bold. And you know what? It should make us optimistic instead of pessimistic. It should keep us focused on what who Christ is rather than being cynical with the world and with those around us. It should actually make us kinder. It should cause us to not be bound by circumstances. So when you're, the next time your child throws a tantrum, if you actually believe, I am meant for this world with my Savior forever and ever, it should actually impact the way that I care for this child or a rejection letter that I receive from a school or a job or the, the crazed driver on the road, or it should make an even an impact on the terrible diagnosis we receive from a doctor, which I would imagine one day in this room, as we live life together, more of us will receive that terrible diagnosis from a doctor. But if this is real, if what the Bible says about heaven is true, and if life after death is absolutely true, then those circumstances, as grave as they can be, should not control us. It should cause grieving, mourning, but never control us. We have so much more to live for. Author Randy Alcorn tells a story of a five-year-old. Her name is Emily Kimball. She was hospitalized, and, and then she heard she was going to die a five-year-old. And she started to cry. And though she loved Jesus and wanted to be with him, she didn't want to leave her family behind. And then her mother had an idea. She asked Emily to step through a doorway into another room, and she closed the door behind her. And one at a time, the entire family started coming through the door to join her. Her mother explained that this is how it would be. Emily would go to heaven, and then the rest of the family would follow and Emily understood she would be the first to go through death's door. And eventually the rest of the family would follow, probably one by one, joining her on the other side. It, when I heard that story, the thing that I thought of is, oh, to be those parents. To actually have to have that conversation with your child. Either these parents and Emily are woefully deluded and are just trying to somehow deal with this fantasy so that they could make those few moments of life feel better? Or they actually believe the Bible, that death is not the end. And knowing God's word to be true, especially about heaven, helps us to live today as long as we have or as short as we have. And frankly, none of us know exactly how long or short that life is. But to find that hope, a living hope, as Peter describes, in the midst of tragedy is only possible not because we've heard or read a movie or saw a movie about heaven, but because this word that we know to be true promises this to be true. It impacts the way we live, our dreams, how we live our lives. Thirdly, when we die, 
immediately life is infinitely better than we know it to be today. This is not something that we tell people to make them feel better as we approach death. We don't say that just because we feel sorry for people as they're dying. Yesterday, uh, we were, as a family, we were having a family worship and we were singing the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Blessed, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. But those words were written by Fanny Crosby and I was thinking about her because she lived in the 1800s and many of you know her story. She was blinded by a quack when she was a baby. Some so-called doctor poured some castor oil or something into her eyes and burned her eyes out. She lived her whole life that way. But she wrote so many hymns. But listen to those words. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste, his glory divine. You know, he, she longed to see Jesus, and she does today. Right now, she sees him fully. Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, quadriplegic, has faith in Christ, loves the Lord deeply. She talks about in her books how one day she will dance with the Lord. Are these just myths and hopeful fantasies? Or is it true that life forever after death is infinitely better? And it's not just for someone who has broken their spine or been blinded by a quack. But it's for all of us, the promise, because we do live in a broken world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. No one who is with Jesus would rather come back to us, no matter how much they love us, because it is infinitely more satisfying to be with him than to be with their loved ones here on earth. Funerals ultimately are not for that person who's gone. It's for us. As much as I might write my own funeral and say, I want this and I want that, the fact of the matter is, I won't care one bit how that funeral is, because I'm going to see, I'm going to be with the Lord. That's all I'll care about. And whether my family decides to follow my script or not, it really doesn't matter. And I'm not saying there's no place to write out your funeral if you want to do that. But the reality is, if you are in Christ, you really won't care at all what happens at your funeral. There's a lot more important things to do for you. So keep that in mind. Now, what this does is when we believe that life is infinitely better than we know it to be today, that should also impact the way we die. I hope that my last breaths are not ones of terror and fear and clinging to this world. That's how people who don't know Christ and what the future holds for them, that's how they die in fear, in terror. Robert Mole, I read this book by him called The Art of Dying. It is something that I would recommend all of you to read, especially if you have either loved ones facing death or you yourself are facing death. And you want to do it early. You don't want to do it when you have barely any strength to read a book. In this book, Robert Mole, who it, he's very uniquely qualified to talk about this because he was a pastor. He went to seminary. He was a hospital chaplain and he was a mortician, all three. So he actually has a lot of experience when it comes to dealing with uh, end-of-life issues. 
He came to see, actually, in all of his interactions with people who were dealing with death all throughout his life, he, he saw how woefully, inadequately prepared they were to deal with some of the most important decisions of their life. Because the fact of the matter is, most of us don't want to talk about death until we have to. But when you have to talk about it, when someone is about to die or has died, usually you're so busy with funeral arrangements and going to the funeral homes and suddenly you have a one-week time to think about all these things. And then you don't know what to do. And you're making, you're signing off on all sorts of things. That's how, you know, the funeral home is a very profitable business. It makes sense. They make a lot of money off of people who are grieving. And though they, and everything, and I've been to enough funeral homes, even in places where you listen to the sales pitch and they know how to talk very quiet. They have a lot of preparation to market all sorts of sales from this is how much this costs, this urn costs this much, this, you want to, you, you want to get the two for one sale on the grave plot. And it's a, we actually have a 50% off sale for you. I've heard it all. You actually hear all that. And if you're not equipped, you start signing off, signing off, because you're not thinking about, well, $10,000 here, $5,000 here. You need to think about death. But you have to think about it rightly, biblically. And the way you do is you understand, first of all, that there's a lot of angst and guilt when it comes to the medical questions. The, perhaps the question of ending medical care for your loved one, for yourself. Do you have a DNR? Are you, uh, have you already equipped your loved ones to make those type of decisions? And one of the greatest, most, the largest challenges that we face as loved ones with someone dying is the question of when do you end medical care? It is so difficult and you do not want to face that question in that moment, you want to think about it now and you want to think about it biblically. And here's the thing is that the better view you have of eternity, the more you'll be able to make these type of choices now. The angst and guilt that comes with this for loved ones, for yourself is tremendous. And just to let you know, and we have a number of medical professionals in this room. I'm sorry to say, but most of you are not equipped at medical school or pharmacy school or nursing school to help people with eternal choices. And so that if you look at it, one of the things that he notes is how, how woefully inadequately prepared are medical professionals to make, to help make those choices because there are different factors involved is we need the hospital bed. How long are they going to take it? So all of these questions are so important for you. He writes this, having end-of-life conversations, making wise choices toward a good death and being present with dying loved ones are especially important because our medical system is not designed to help people die. Despite the remarkable advances of modern medicine, which have led to longer lives, journalist Virginia Morris says that doctors and hospitals often make the difficult work of dying even more arduous. Often, hospitals are an obstacle to a good death simply because they're not in the business of helping people to die, but to live. This is not a condemnation of the medical system, which does an excellent job healing the sick, but it is simply not arranged and its workers are not trained to help people make 
wise end-of-life choices. If you're depending on your doctor or your nurse or your hospice nurse to help you to make these choices, then you're looking to the wrong places because they're not there to try to help them, your loved ones to die well. They're there to help them to live as long as possible. But God's word equips us. And one thing it equips us with is this is not the end. If your loved one knows Christ, that should dramatically impact the way that you make choices for your loved ones. For you to actually preemptively make choices for your loved ones. We need to have a robust, biblically processed view of life after death to not only help our loved ones with death, but to help our loved ones with their souls. And so it should matter then, what are the conversations you're having with them? If it's just, I love sports, but if it's all about sports or what's on Netflix, I mean, really, if that's what you're thinking about, if that's what's surrounding that hospital room or that hospice room or your house as they're dying, you're not understanding what they're going to see, who they're going to be with eternally. And I hope that my prayer is for myself, and I pray this prayer, Lord, please help me to die well. If I should be conscious of what my last breaths are like, I want to go with faith. I don't want to be afraid. I want to know with confidence. And the more I study the Bible and see what does the Bible say about heaven, the more I know. And I'm confident, Lord willing, that I will go in faith. Offering a better place option to people who are about to say goodbye to a dear loved one is too far abstract. It's meaningless. It also should, I hope this series, what it does, it helps you to know how to comfort people when they're facing death. What to say to them. Sometimes it's just crying with them. Sometimes it's just saying, you know what? So thankful I could be here with you to mourn with you. It's, it's to recognize that this is not an awkward time. It's a time of ministry and care and love and mercy and kindness. When we see a believer and we know that as they're about to breathe their last and clothe, close their eyes with a wife or a husband or a child or a parent in view and they're about to close their eyes, know with confidence if they are in Christ Jesus, they believe him, that when they open their eyes, as soon as they close them, they're going to open them and see Jesus. And they are going to see his nail-scarred hands. They're going to see how they got there. Why when they open their eyes, they see the person, not heaven, but the person whom they have been created for, whom they love, whom they cherish, whom they treasure beyond all measure. And they have gone home. They've really gone home to be with the Lord. This is not a myth. This is what the thief on the cross heard from Jesus. Today, you will be with me in paradise because I'm here on this cross for you. It was Paul's hope. It's our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for how much you loved us. That your own son paved the way for us to be able to know that when we breathe our last and we open our eyes 
we will see our sweet Savior who is so deeply soul-satisfying that there will be none like Him for us. That we will not miss one moment of this world. Instead, we will be so happy, so delightful. Oh Lord, I pray that that reality would make a difference for us today in how we live, in our patience. May it really impact our anger, our deep unforgiveness. Because if that just means we're living for but a few precious moments of our own independence from you, then that only makes us miserable. I pray, O oh Lord, especially for those who have never trusted in the name of Jesus Christ today. Lord, that independence from you is going to be their destruction. And it is something that is so disturbing. We don't even want to talk about it, but we must. I pray that there would be a trust in the name of Jesus. You are the only means by which we can be saved. And I know that by your spirit, you want to do the work of saving people. So open the eyes of those who do not believe in you. And for those who do trust in you, I pray, O oh God, that we would go and prepare our lives to live in faith, to be bold, to be courageous, to be a person who longs for others to know him because we so long for people to know Christ as Lord. We do not want people to face death without you, Lord. Father, for those of us who have perhaps put off too long conversations of faith with loved ones, with neighbors and families, friends, we are doing a disservice to them. We think we are helping them by not bringing up awkward conversations. But in truth, we are not serving them well. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us Incite us, O oh Lord, by your Spirit to not only preach to our own souls the gospel of Christ that saves us for an eternity, but as well would be able to empower us to do the same for others around us. So we praise you, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this table. In Jesus' name.